This is a podcast from the Business Times. I'm Clarissa Montero, and this is Lens on Singapore. Recently, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that asked if Singapore was the next Hong Kong. Admittedly, not a new question. Comparisons between the two have been made since both were British colonies. But why is this question garnering so much interest lately? So much so that the South China Morning Post ran an editorial to list why Singapore is superior to Hong Kong in almost every way. And The Economist, too, weighed in with its editorial. A winner has emerged in the old rivalry between Singapore and Hong Kong. I must admit, as a Singaporean, I am intrigued. Asia editor heard on the street, The Wall Street Journal, Nathaniel Taplin, who wrote the piece, Singapore's moment is here, will it last, on the phone with me. Why the current focus? Why is Singapore in trend now? Well, there's um, a lot of different things going on. Partly it's the troubles in other parts of the region, certainly. You know, you saw both China and Hong Kong were shut for a long time and had some pandemic policies, which many people think were, towards the end at least, counterproductive. And, you know, you've also had the political changes in Hong Kong, which I think have had some people worried about the security of their assets or persons. And, you know, at the same time, Singapore maintains a kind of very enviable, neutral position, you might say, between the West and China at a time when tensions on both sides have really been ratcheting up. Hong Kong have drifted a bit more towards the mainland. And so I think Singapore is in quite an enviable position now for all those different reasons. You brought up housing, both in Hong yeah. Kong and Singapore. But since that article was published, Singapore private rental home prices have overtaken that of Hong Kong. And yes. according to the latest Home Attainability Index from the Urban Land Institute, that changes the complexion of what you said in your article. So how does this put a dampener on Singapore's appeal and how important is it to tame the housing market? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. You know, I mean, to put those numbers into context, it's certainly true that there's been a truly horrendous rise in, in <laughs> rents in Singapore over the past we year. We noticed. I think uh, everyone agrees on that. On the other hand, you know, those figures from the, the Institute, you know, you also show that the actual home price on a per meter basis, <laughs> Singapore is still much more affordable, right? So I think they're saying the medium home price per square meter in Hong Kong was almost US 20,000 and Singapore is about 10,000. So particularly on the rental side, it's been really, I think, traumatic for many people in Singapore. But I think you also have to put things a little bit in context in terms of the actual space you have. And also, you know, over the past 15 years, you look at housing costs in Hong Kong and housing costs in Singapore and, you know, Hong Kong home prices are up around 200% even after the recent decline. And, and Singapore, I think, is also substantial, but is more like half of that. And that's at a period when, you know, actual income growth in Singapore has been quite rapid and has surpassed Hong Kong on a per capita basis. So not to minimize the problems at all, but just a, a little bit of context there. But, you know, at the same time, there's no doubt that if you want to keep attracting foreign talent, you need to have affordable housing. And Singapore has clearly lost some ground on that in the past 
year or so. And part of that is, in a way, just some bad luck. I'm looking at some of the figures here on construction, and it looks like for private residential units, you know, there was a big kind of construction boom in the early 2010s, which tapered off a bit in recent years. And then, you know, you had, in terms of public flats, you had a pretty big construction boom in ending around 2017. And then right before the pandemic, things kind of tapered off a bit. And obviously, during the pandemic, it's harder to actually build things. So the government and industry as well have, have some real ground to make up, and it will be critical to do that. But part of it is also just turned out to be sort of bad timing in terms of when things were built. Jeff Howie from the SGX has been living and working in Singapore for several years. But prior to his arrival in Singapore, he spent several years in Hong Kong too, which offers us an opportunity for a first-person comparison. First of all, I guess I, I would not consider myself an expatriate who's mm. on some profit package that uh, keeps us going. I think I bear a lot of the cost of living increases like most Singaporeans, and we do the best we can with it. Uh, for rents, yeah, I've had two working stints in Hong Kong, and I'm pretty sure that what I paid then, close to 20 years ago, is pretty similar to what I pay now. Mm. So I guess, that, like you said, there has been some convergence. It is a huge part of it. I remember actually uh, rents would be around 25% to 30% of your salary when I was working there when we set up uh, Man Financial Hong Kong back in 2004, 2005. Look, housing is everything. I mean, it's, it's the cornerstone of your net wealth. Uh, the Housing Development Board progress over the last three, four decades has provided a lot of security to Singaporeans, young Singaporeans. Uh, I think that's a that's a platform that could be exported to many places across the world. My home country of Australia has a massive housing problem at the moment, and it's one of these these questions that you walk around these churches in Europe that were built a thousand years ago that are incredibly architecturally designed, amazing buildings. And you think we could build this a thousand years ago, yet we have many advanced countries across the world that have massive homelessness problems. This is a this is an issue that I think is a big one. And it's certainly one that uh, Singapore has got right with the HDB program. I think it really depends on the person, Clarissa. And I'm not trying to not answer the question, but if you like 100 kilometer hikes going up and down tall mountains, Macklehouse Trail, for instance, Dragonback, you probably prefer Hong Kong. But if you can only speak English and have other considerations, such as the great spicy food that we serve here, as well as really wanting to connect with the community, I think you probably prefer Singapore. We're, we're a small city-state island that uh, does rely on good international commerce to survive commercially. At the same time, we have a very rich economic history that has been very much focused on structural development. We turn now to Associate Professor and Assistant Dean Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, Alfred Wu, a senior journalist in China who later spent a decade studying and teaching in Hong Kong would perhaps give us a better understanding of China's position on Hong Kong from the perspective of policy, because there is now some uncertainty around how China's more direct involvement could affect Hong Kong's appeal 
to foreign investors. Maybe I would like to explain the structure of Hong Kong. Hong Kong used to be viewed as a bridge between the West and the East. So it means that Hong Kong will help China to get the foreign investments. Some foreign investments are not very confident in China that they could just come to Hong Kong. And recently, we do hear a lot of concerns because Hong Kong's structure is changing. People worry about whether investment will be at risk at some point. So people worry about whether Hong Kong still adopt rule law, and the British system was cultivated long time ago. Basically, some people are concerned about whether Hong Kong's system is very much converge with China. But if you look into basic law, the China side only takes care of Hong Kong's foreign affairs and defense. Now the situation is changing because of 2019 social movement and the next year's national security law. Nowadays, the central government actually steps in in Hong Kong's domestic affairs. The latest example, COVID-19 management. Although it's about public health, the central government asked Hong Kong SCR government to be aligned with the central government's policy. That's also why some people are concerned about Hong Kong's position in terms of attracting foreign investment, because they would be thinking that the central government still will have a say. For example, whether Hong Kong should get more investment from United States under U.S.-China tension. If the central government really thinks it's not right to get more investment from United States, all business would be at stake. So now the concern is many people don't know the boundary. The system anymore. The system does not really look like the old free market system. In the past, the boundary was very clear. The PRC government also emphasized a lot. Hong Kong is pro-business environment, and PRC's laws will not apply in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong just the one ruled by the British for 100 years. In general, people will have feeling that Hong Kong will not be different from London. But the biggest difference between Hong Kong and London is Hong Kong is close to China physically, right? You can actually enjoy all benefits. But now the situation is we don't know the boundary because the boundary is evolving. No one offered the answer. The PRC central government never tried to say I'm not welcoming foreign investment. Instead, the PRC central government say that they like foreign investment a lot. But in the meantime, the central government also collects down data espionage. So it makes people think Hong Kong will be the same because it's under the same Chinese government. So people will be worried and concerned about that. How has Singapore seized on this opportunity to entice some of that investments here to our shores, and how successful have we been? Just on the numbers, you you can see it to a certain extent. So I have that chart in my piece, and you look at. In terms of portfolio inflows from offshore into Hong Kong and Singapore over the past several years, prior to 2019, in Hong Kong that was running around five billion US a quarter, and and you know since it dipped down a lot in 2019 and 2020, it's come back a little bit, but it's still now only running, at least according to the recent data. Which is the end of last year, around on a kind of moving quarter average, around one billion US a quarter. And prior to to all that, Singapore was more, you know, in the kind of one to five range, and now it's up above five pretty consistently. 
uh, since the end of 2021. So you're seeing much smaller portfolio capital inflows into Hong Kong on average and, and significantly larger on average than the trend for the past 10 years into Singapore than beforehand. So I think the trend is real. And if you look at assets under management, I think that number is in my piece as well. I think in, in 2021, I think it was up 16% or something like that in Singapore. It's a pretty substantial number. And Hong Kong, still larger in absolute terms, but growing much, much slower. You know, I think it was up maybe a couple percentage points. So the numbers are, are pretty clear. Now that China is open again, we'll see what the future holds. Probably Hong Kong will come back a little bit, I would imagine, because of that. But some of that damage, I think, will probably persist. What do we need to do? You're right. China is going to open up again. They're going to have to be more aggressive again. Yeah. What does Singapore do to sustain this growth? trajectory and to see this continued robust capital inflows. Yeah. One thing we already talked about, obviously, is housing. If you know you want to attract private wealth inflows, you need to have a housing market that people can afford and have some predictability. Another thing is to, frankly, just kind of keep walking the tightrope that Singapore has been walking quite effectively, actually, between China and the US. Because part of what we were talking about earlier, obviously, is that Singapore now really does, I think, in Asia, occupy this unique position where it has strong links to both China and the U.S. You have American warships coming through once in a while. Um, You have very good relations with the U.S. You have strong rule of law and a court system which is pretty well respected for business things, certainly. But then on the other hand, you have the cultural similarities with China China often holds up Singapore as a model in some ways of where it would like to go in terms of the government system, which, you know, is very efficient, not very much corruption, high growth, very reliable environment for business, but is obviously not fully democratic in the way that the US or or Europe would characterize itself. So I think there's this kind of a line there that Singapore is treading very well and may get harder in the future as you get more wealthy, influential Chinese people arriving in particular. You know, there's a risk at some point that China becomes unhappy with that or there's someone goes to Singapore that they would prefer to be talking to in China. Those kind of questions could become more difficult. The military questions could become more difficult. So it's going to be a very fine line to walk for Singapore, I think. But it's one that it's done well so far. The main thing is to just keep keep doing that without straying too far, really, in either direction, probably. Still to come, we look through the lens of business to further delve into the comparisons between Singapore and Hong Kong. That's ahead. Chief Executive Singapore International Chamber of Commerce, Victor Mills, provides us with a view of the uniqueness of Singapore as a business destination for companies seeking a presence in Asia. Singapore is a trusted brand. People trusted to deliver on that brand. Uh, and, and just this afternoon, I heard an amazing statistic that in the last 10 years, Singapore attracted more foreign direct investment from multinational companies than anywhere else on the planet. And I think that says a lot for the brand. And of course, a lot of that brand rests on the fact that we are a politically stable country. It's the full package or attracts businesses to want to be based here. So for example, the rule of law 
and the fact that your business contracts can be enforced and your intellectual property protected. Uh, there's no doubt that the use of the English language, for certainly for Western business people, is a huge advantage. In, and it's the language of business, government and the courts. Uh, you've got a taxation regime that is fair and progressive. You've got a very nice place to live and from which you can cover, thanks to good connectivity, all your operations across ASEAN member states and further, whether it's India or China. So I think it's very much that package and the fact that Singapore delivers on it. You know, more businesses setting up regional HQs here than anywhere, any other place. I think it's just fantastic. It's, it speaks to the ability of the brand to deliver. Now, Victor, beyond political stability and the support of the government through incentives to entice companies to invest here, let's talk about human capital. The populations of the rest of the region are becoming more educated, certainly more capable. How can we ensure that the local Singapore workforce stays competitive to changing demands? Great question. Uh, and it's, it's a tough one. You know, because of our economic success in the last 50, nearly 60 years. Which everybody wants to be able to do themselves. Indeed. It also breeds a certain complacency sometimes. Mm. And we can't be complacent for exactly the point you make. And that is, we've got growing populations uh, across the region. You think in particular of Indonesia, you think of Vietnam. You've got very able and very hungry people who are extremely capable. I think this is why the government has pumped so much money into training Singaporeans after their schooling years in order to help keep them relevant. And I think very intelligently has collaborated with businesses to let businesses co-design courses that meet current business needs. So that's, that's one obvious way in which we can stay competitive. I mean, the days of you uh, went to school, you went to university, you got a degree, and then that was all you ever did. It's the last time you look at schoolwork. Correct. And of course, we all know that is completely inadequate for today's world because it's moving so fast, digitalization. And if you don't keep up, you can't hope to be relevant to an employer. I think the second thing that Singapore is good at is, of course, being open to talent and managing that divide between is this global talent taking a local job or is this global talent enabling a local to get a job? The official policy of complementarity is very, very important because Singapore needs good quality local and global talent in order to let businesses achieve their business goals and grow the economy. And I think this is where businesses need to do more to integrate their talent and enable them through a positive workplace culture to perform and excel. That intermingling of local knowledge and global perspective coming together is the way for Singapore to stay competitive, to continue to attract investment and provide jobs for Singaporeans. In terms of markets, some investors contend that the Hang Seng Index is more diverse and dynamic in comparison to the Straits Times Index. That's one opinion. There's also the opinion of others who feel collectively both indices have different things to offer a well-balanced portfolio. Well, I, I think 
When you look at Hang Seng, you look at STI, obviously they're both benchmarks and representative of a lot of the big blue chip companies that drive uh, a lot of the economics of both countries. But when you look at the STI, it's very much like Singapore, Singapore's economy. You break down the revenue of the STI and you've got half of it is from a weightage perspective, 50% of the STI's revenue is reported here at home and 50% is reported across the rest of the world, mostly Asia Pacific, mostly with our trading partners, China, Malaysia, Indonesia, Hong Kong, and so forth. At the moment, it's Southeast Asia, which has the world's attention because there's there's two key distinct growth drivers at the moment that are including electronic vehicles uh, and renewable green mining, which we are a powerhouse for across Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia and Philippines. And then, of course, you've got the rising dynamic role of digitalization in driving consumer growth, which is also very prevalent across Southeast Asia. Then in China, you also have this new services-led recovery, which is also a very similar dynamic, but also very different when you look at we're totally two different jurisdictions. I think, like you say, there's a role for both. Uh, We have... For instance, um, our Hang Seng Tech ETF from Lion Global and OCBC is our most traded ETF on a day-to-day basis every day this year on an average basis. And then you have our STI companies, DBS, OCBC, UOB, Singtel, Yangtze Jiang Shipbuilding among our most traded stocks every day as well. So there's obviously an appetite for Hong Kong stocks here in Singapore, and we see that through the ETF participation. And definitely an appetite for stocks that are China-related as well. Why we are working these days is that you want to provide investors as much and as many as diversified investing opportunities as you can. And hence, Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore, you've got a number of, uh, of options. Do you look at where all the liquidity and the turnover is by itself? No, because if you only focused on liquidity and turnover, you wouldn't look at Hong Kong. You wouldn't look at... Uh, Singapore, you'd only look at Japan. So each exchange has to make sure that there's enough investing opportunities that that are available and also productize as far as you can to ensure that investors can hedge against anticipated volatility. And that's what we aim to do at SGX. There are some structural things going on here. China is having a worse than expected recovery. And some of that probably has to do with some general damage to confidence in the entrepreneurial environment there, in the environment for people of large asset bases. And again, Hong Kong, there's been some big political changes in the past few years, and there's been some missteps during the pandemic, which again, have probably damaged some of Hong Kong's attractiveness for people with a lot of money or people who want a predictable business environment in general. I think it's not just about what's happened, it's about what could happen as well, right? You have this potential case with Google coming up where, you know, the Hong Kong government is challenging the right of people to post certain things online. If, for example, you were to have a situation where Western tech companies don't feel comfortable operating in Hong Kong anymore, then that kind of calls into question certain things about Hong Kong status as well, right? So I think... There are certain structural things in Singapore's favor, partly because uncertainty has gone up so much in China and Hong Kong, and people just don't know what's going to happen. And so 
I think that's a structural tailwind. At the same time, you know, you don't know exactly where China is going to be a year from now economically either. Maybe it turns things around. Maybe unemployment goes down. Maybe the electric vehicle industry, which is doing very well, becomes an enormous growth driver and helps solve some of the unemployment problems. Maybe more people regain confidence in China's trajectory. There's still a lot of uncertainty. Things could go that way too. So I think there's some clear structural tailwinds, but there's also a lot of uncertainty, which has to do with, I would say, kind of the Chinese economy's trajectory as well. Perhaps instead of asking if Singapore is the next Hong Kong, or even which of the two is better, the complementarity of Singapore and Hong Kong, both as potential locations for companies seeking to anchor themselves in Asia, might be another point of view. Although, my competitive sensibilities questions, where's the fun in that? This has been Lens on Singapore. Our guests for this podcast, Asia editor, heard on the street, The Wall Street Journal, Nathaniel Taplin, Associate Professor and Assistant Dean, Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, Alfred Wu, Chief Executive, Singapore International Chamber of Commerce, Victor Mills, and Market Strategist, Singapore Exchange Limited, Jeff Howie. For The Business Times, I'm Clarissa Montero. This is a podcast by The Business Times. Find more BT podcasts at businesstimes.com.sg slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.